0: My name is Maroon Mara, and I'm a member of the ATS training committee. On behalf of the training committee and myself, we are excited to bring you this podcast series on medical education. In today's episode, our moderator is Dr. Richard Kubek, the co-chair of Trainees Interested in Medical Education, or TIME. Rick will be interviewing Dr. Henry Fessler from John Hopkins Hospital and Dr. Molly Hayes from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. This was an excellent discussion going over the review process of medical education research manuscripts. The group covered great topics like what are the benefits of being a reviewer, what are the best practices for writing a great review, how to get involved, and much more. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. On behalf of the ATS Training Committee and trainees interested in medical education, I'm your host for this episode, Rick Kobeck, immediate past co-chair of the Trainees Interested in Medical Education Group a pulmonary and critical care medicine physician at Spectrum Health and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Michigan State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thank you all for joining. Today, I'm very excited to be discussing a recent publication from ATS's medical education focused journal, ATS Scholar, titled How We Review a Medical Education Research Manuscript by Dr. Molly Hayes and Dr. Henry Fessler, which they describe their thoughtful approach and experience with the peer review process of medical education-based literature. They were delighted to be joined by the authors of this paper By way of introduction, Dr. Hayes is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Director of the Medical Intensive Care Units at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Director for External Education at the Carl J. Shapiro Institute for Education and Research. She also currently serves as the Vice Chair of the ATS Education Committee and Chair of Core Curriculum, and sits on the Editorial Board of ATS Scholar. Dr. Fessler is a Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the Director for Education in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care, And the Associate Editor of ATS Scholar. Additionally, he's previously served as the Associate Editor at the Annals of the ATS and on the Editorial Board of the Blue Journal. Thanks so much Dr. Hayes and Dr. Fessler for being here.
2: Our pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Well I'm hoping during our time here today we can discuss three distinct topics. The first being to describe some of the benefits to participating in peer review and how to become involved. The second being to discuss your particular approach to conducting peer review. And lastly, if we could take a look behind the curtain as it were of the review process once a manuscript is submitted. Leading into this discussion, as you think about your own motivation and background coming into writing this article, I was wondering if you each could share how you became involved in peer review process, perhaps Dr. Hayes, beginning with you.
0: Sure, so actually it was Hank who was my program director who encouraged me to review when I was a fellow. and another mentor of mine at the time directed me to the article, How I Review an Original Scientific article, which was published in 2002 in the Blue Journal. And I vividly remember printing that out and highlighting it and going through it. And when I did my first review, I followed it like to a T, like it was a recipe. And then I continued to do more reviews as a fellow and first year faculty. As Hank can attest to, I'm like plagued by Catholic guilt. So I always want to say yes to reviewing, and I constantly will email the editor with some suggestions or concerns that I have before I actually submit my final review. But I started early on and continue to review as much as possible now.
2: So, so like Molly, uh, I, I also got started as a fellow when my mentors, who didn't have time to do their own review, asked me if I would help them review a paper. Um, I had a little bit maybe more systematic introduction to it when I was a fellow during one of our rotations. One of our faculty members had previously been an associate editor of the Blue Journal. Back then, it was the American Review of Respiratory Disease. And if you can imagine that back then, when you submitted a paper, you had to print it out and mail it to the associate editor who then made copies of it and mailed it to the reviewers who wrote their review and mailed them into the associate editor. That's probably why it took, you know, three or four months to get a review done. But he had a whole file full of papers, manuscripts that had been submitted to him, along with the reviews uh, that the reviewers had sent. And during one of our rotations during fellowship, each week we would pick one of the manuscripts, write our own review of it, And then the next week, we'd go over our review with him, and uh, he would show us the reviews that the reviewers had submitted. This probably violated every confidentiality agreement that he had signed, but it was great training, a way to get some initial experience with reviewing. And then I think I learned more about it and uh, began to take it more seriously when I started submitting my own papers and got back reviews, typically scathing reviews uh, on them. So it was something that I, I started with fellowship, but continued to learn long after I became a faculty member.
1: Uh, thanks so much for sharing. I think it's fascinating to hear the backstory and context leading into this article. And it sounds like you both began fairly early in your careers as motivated by mentors. And perhaps this podcast will do more of the same, encouraging those earlier in their careers to take steps toward becoming involved in the peer review process. At this point now then, as you reflect back on your experiences and work over time and peer review, what do you see as some of the career benefits to being involved as a reviewer?
0: So I think for me, especially early on, I learn a ton about the subject matter. So as a reviewer, you want to make sure that it's something that you feel like you can review. You have some expertise in the area, but you don't have to know every single thing. So you really learn a lot by reviewing. And that's been sort of one of the really positive benefits um, for me. I always learn more. I also learn about sort of the scientific process and writing style. I feel like reviewing has made me a better writer. The other thing that I really have enjoyed is when I get back the reviews. So after you submit your review, the editor will send an email to the authors that you'll be blind copied on and you'll be able to see what the other reviewers said and thought, which has also helped you learn if they picked up something that maybe you didn't Or it helps you sort of feel good about yourself and help with your imposter syndrome if they actually commented on some of the same things that you did. And I've also noticed over the last couple of years that the editors sort of take note. If you do a good job reviewing, they'll send you more reviews. They might ask you to write an editorial. So I think it's really helpful for your career in that way as well.
2: Yeah, I agree with all of those benefits that that Molly lists. Um, In particular, the opportunity to to stretch your, uh, your knowledge base. So you know you shouldn't agree to do a review if, you're, if you don't know anything about the topic. But if you know a little about the topic, uh, but need to expand your knowledge, it's really a great motivator. And for me, I've, I've done reviews on papers, manuscripts, that I probably had no business being a reviewer on, but it really forced me to learn topics that I wouldn't have otherwise taken a deep dive into. In, in terms of the career benefits um, beyond the personal benefits, I mean it's a it's a line item you can put on your CV, you know that you've been a reviewer for this journal or that journal. Probably doesn't carry a lot of weight, but as, as Molly mentioned, although your reviews are anonymous to the author and the other reviewers, the editor who asked you to do the review they know who you are, and so if you're consistently a good reviewer, if you get your reviews in on time you're thoughtful, you're detailed. They take notice of that. And they will ask you to review more papers. That's kind of a, a mixed blessing. But the good reviewers are also the people who get asked to write editorials. Uh, they might be asked to uh, sit on editorial boards, maybe eventually become an associate editor. So it, it is a way to get your name known among people who are the shakers and movers in our field.
0: And Rick, I'll just add to that personal experience that I had with Hank as an editor for a journal when he asked me to do a review, I submitted it and really didn't think anything of it. And then Hank had emailed me and said, like, wow, you really did learn a lot since you left Hopkins. And it was a, a qualitative paper. And I had like taken a qualitative research fellowship since I had left Hopkins. And I was felt like so good that I got this like kudos from Hank and really made me realize, wow, the editors are looking at this. So I think for junior faculty, especially, it's a it's a nice thing to sort of show your skills off, especially to people who maybe don't know that you have these skills.
2: One of the reasons that I wanted to to co-write this paper with Molly is because she is such a good reviewer.
1: A blessing and a (laughs) curse. Professional and career development, increased knowledge base, interacting within the scientific community. I think you both cite really compelling reasons for the benefits of being involved in peer review. Being a reviewer certainly sounds like an interesting and achievable way to grow and expand your career as either a clinician educator or a clinician scientist. So at this point, for those listening, like myself, thinking this sounds like a rewarding practice that they'd like to build into their own career paths, how could a fellow or new faculty member get involved as a reviewer?
0: I think one of the best ways is to let your mentors know that you're interested. Um, You can even offer to do one with them. A lot of us get, request to review. I actually just got two this morning um, and we have more than we can keep up with and you want to make sure that you have time to do it and get them back in a timely fashion. So definitely ask your mentors like, hey, do you have reviews that I can be involved in that I could do that I can take off your plate? Um, You can also reach out to your program directors, division chiefs, et cetera, if you don't want to just ask your direct mentor. And then also can reach out to some of the journals, some of the editors of the journals, and let them know that you're interested as well.
1: Thanks for sharing. That all really sounds very accessible and reasonable for those interested and willing to take that first step of initiative. So let's say one of our listeners is in a position where they are now, a novice reviewer, and receive an email inviting them to review a paper. What sort of things would you recommend that they do next?
2: So I think there's a few things that they need to consider. Uh, the reflex is you're so flattered when you're asked to review a paper, particularly as a fellow or junior faculty member, that you might just automatically accept. But you need you need to think a few things through. First, consider what the journal was that made the request. You know, We're all aware at this point of predatory journals, but even a non-predatory journal may be some minor journal that you've never heard of it's going to take a long time for you to do a review and so you know consider whether you want to put that time in for a journal that maybe not directly in our field or maybe one that you've never read then think about the about the topic itself whether or not as i mentioned you have sufficient expertise in the area and you don't have to be an expert in every aspect of the manuscript but you should know at least something uh, about the topic and it should be a topic about which you're interested think about conflicts of interest so before the associate editor or the editor asks you to review a paper they'll look over some basic conflicts of interest like whether or not you're at the same institution as the authors but there may be some others that aren't obvious to them you know if you're if you're working in the same field and maybe you're worried about getting scooped on some experiments or some studies that you're currently working on, uh, you have to be honest with yourself as to whether or not you can provide a fair review. Similarly, if, if you know the authors, you're friends with the authors, maybe they'd be, they're at different institutions, you, you have to be honest with yourself as to whether or not you can be frank with your review. Friendship never has uh, interfered with my ability to provide honest feedback, but I at least have to be aware of that potential for uh, for bias. And then I think about whether or not I have enough time. I mean, it really takes a substantial amount of time to do a good review. So if you're about to go on service for uh, for two weeks in the ICU, or you're about to take a vacation, that may preclude you accepting this invitation. Although sometimes I've just written to the to the associate editor and say, you know, hey, I'm going to be away for a week. Is it okay if my review comes in a little bit late? And they'll, they'll generally agree to that. It's, it's easier for them to delay a bit than to try to figure out who else to invite to do that review. If all systems are go, you know, and this is something that you that you want to do and you feel that you can do, then don't delay agreeing to it. Most of the online submission sites will uh, automatically decline for you if you don't reply within a few days and the associate editor is also sitting there pretty anxious to get make sure that all of the reviewers have agreed so just think it through and let them know right away if it's something that you want to do or if it's something that you're going to decline
1: that's excellent appreciate i think our audience will appreciate as well hearing all of those insights and learning from your experience in this area What I might like to do now is transition from discussing some of the benefits and how to become involved in peer review to your specific approach to the review process. Dr. Hayes and Dr. Fessler, would you be willing to discuss how you both approach conducting a review once provided with a manuscript?
0: So one of the first things that I do, and we wrote this in the paper, and um, it may seem like a little old school, especially in this day and age, But I actually print out the the paper from the online portal, print it out, and read it on the actual paper, which I know is a surprise to many people who do everything on the computer screen or phone or iPad. So I print it out, and I read it first from start to finish, just very big picture, just kind of get a sense of what is this paper about and then I typically will go back in the sort of in the same setting. So I'll sit down, give myself an hour, read through it quickly, and then read through it very carefully. And, you know, I'll have, I'm have i a big highlighter person. I'll bring high, use a highlighter, use a pen, pencil, whatever, and write down lots of notes to myself, write down questions. There might be something that I need to look up. That goes back to sort of the learning process. When you're doing this, you learn a lot more and really kind of just go through with a fine-tooth comb.
2: Yeah, I'd say that first read through. The most difficult thing for me is to be completely uncritical. Shocking to hear that. <laughs>
0: it's
2: it's uh, you know it's inevitable that I'm just going to notice little things that annoy me as I'm reading uh, reading through it the first time. But I really want to try to give the authors the opportunity to take their best shot. You know, to just explain to me to tell their story the way they want it told, without judgment, and then. Molly, you said you, you, you almost immediately go back and reread the manuscript more carefully. I find I have to let it percolate for a while. So I, I'll put it down and I'll come back to it a few days later. And, and that's when I start going through it in greater detail. Like you, I'll, I'll jot down notes. And one of the advantages of printing it out, well, there's two advantages to me working on paper. One is that I, I find I read more closely when I'm reading something on paper than on a computer screen. But the other is it's also just easier and quicker for me to jot down notes in the margin um, about things that I want to look up later or I want to comment on later. So that's my second read. And then I usually need at least a third read, um, maybe at the same time as I'm writing the, the review in, in order to make sure that I've thought about all the details that I want to comment on.
0: But I can pick it up from there. And then when we actually write the review, So I will do this in a Word document and actually go through, like we discuss in the paper, with a a summary or a synopsis, and then go through major comments and minor comments. And really just writing, sort of consolidating the notes that I have had on my margins in the paper and going through sort of each piece of the paper. Again, these major comments, really thinking about big issues that maybe need to be changed. And then minor comments are more stylistic things there might be some grammar errors there might be some minor corrections that that you may suggest. I think one thing to keep in mind when you're writing this out and we, you know we put this in the paper regarding the golden rule that you want to make sure that you know you're fair and you're kind. Like there shouldn't be a lot of emotion in it. Even if things are bothering you like Hank said or you are annoyed by certain things in the paper, you really want to make sure that none of that sort of annoyance comes across in the review cuz the authors are reading this and you know, you may be annoyed with something, but they might have spent 10 years like working on this. And like, I've definitely gotten back reviews that feel a little bit mean or harsh, and that never feels good. So make sure that you're very fair and unbiased and have no emotion in what you're writing.
2: Yeah. So I think, uh, I think the, the tone of the review may be the most important feature. You know, my, my, my natural tone is, is sarcasm. Molly, is that, do you think that is a fair description?
0: I think it's absolutely fair, Hank. Yeah.
2: So I, but I, so I try to filter out that when I'm writing one of these reviews, and I, and I think for myself how I've felt when I've gotten a review, you know, a review that maybe wasn't necessarily written in a in a harsh tone, but it always hits home that way. If it, you know, if it's if it's not recommending publication or asking for a lot of if it's asking for a lot of modification, it always just feels bad you know I, I feel misunderstood i feel humiliated um, i feel angry you know it, it all of these emotions erupt and so i try to think back on the reviews that i've received and lord knows i have a a, a rich experience in negative reviews and then try to imagine how the author is going to feel if if they get a review that doesn't have quite the right tone you know especially if they're if they're young you know if if they're concerned about whether they they have a future in academic medicine I, you know they're 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 very fragile they're very vulnerable when they receive that review so you you really have to make sure that you make it make it helpful make it the sort of thing that they would get from a good mentor not just a critique
0: the other thing i'll add to that is um, after you you know you'll submit your review, again, I, like I said, I write it on Word, and then I'll copy-paste and put it in the online portal in that, you know, summary or synopsis, major comments, minor comments format. And then there's an, a box on the online portal that says confidential comments to the editor. And I actually do frequently, as Hank probably knows, um, use this box, and I will write things to the editor. And sometimes it's things that I'm either questioning myself or just kind of questioning. So my background is mostly qualitative. So I do a lot more qualitative reviews than quantitative, but I I do do some quantitative as well. So there might be a statistical issue that I tried to look up. I'm not sure about, I don't understand. And I might write that like, listen, I don't think this is right, but I'm not sure if I know enough to say for sure. Like, but this is worrisome to me for X, Y, and Z reason. So I'll put some of those questions in there and I don't know, Hank, is, it, is that helpful to you and to other editors when uh, reviewers put stuff in that box? Uh,
2: yes, it, it, it really helps them uh, get some insight into the things that you've written to the authors. I, I would say to the people listening to this podcast, you should always write confidential comments to the editor. It, it's an opportunity to explain why you've recommended rejection, acceptance, um, major re- revision, to lay out the, the, uh, the things that the authors would really have to do in order to make this publishable if you haven't accepted it right away. Um, and and that's, that's very helpful when the editor gets uh, reviews from multiple people and has to kind of put them together into a message to the authors. Another thing that you, you could put in this uh, section to the editor is your, your recommendations whether or not to, uh, to publish. There's usually a checkbox for that as well. But I wanna add, it's important that you don't say that to the author uh, in, the, in the parts that you write to the author. So that is a, a decision that the editor will make and you shouldn't telegraph to the authors what your, what your opinion on this is. Um, furthermore, the tone of the review, I said it should generally be positive and helpful. It should be consistent with what your final recommendation for publication is. you know don't lavish praise on a paper that you're then going to reject because that just gets to be very confusing to the authors and they won't understand why the why their paper was rejected. So have some consistency between the tone of the review to the authors and the recommendation to the editor but just be kind in the way that you phrase it
1: So many golden pieces of advice within your responses. Thank you so much for such a thoughtful and pragmatic approach that I think both those reviewing and those who submit papers for review can learn from. Certainly, I would refer our listeners to your article for even more detail and a chance to learn further from your expertise here. As we've discussed now how a review is conducted at the individual level, if we could now take a step back and perhaps look behind the curtain, as it were, it's some of the logistics behind the review process, beginning at a higher level from a journal or editor perspective, as we've briefly touched on so far, once a manuscript is submitted to a journal, how are reviewers typically chosen for a specific submission?
2: Well, the the editor in chief or uh, the deputy editor, they'll read the title and the abstract and they'll decide if it's appropriate for the journal, if it's aimed at the right target audience, And whether it meets some minimum quality standards, Uh, they'll check the conflict of interest statements, and then they'll send it out to uh, one of the associate editors. The associate editor will will read through the manuscript in a little bit more detail, and then they'll they'll pick reviewers uh, based on content expertise, the lack of conflict of interest with the authors, um, and then looking at individual reviewers. their burden of reviews has been recently so knowing that molly got two reviews this week i probably wouldn't send her one next week the members of the editorial board are expected to do more reviews than uh than just other uh, reviewers in the field Um, and also consider the uh the author's suggestion authors are often given the opportunity to uh, suggest reviewers i will personally uh I, i tend to go to people that I know, but I also try to look more broadly at people that I may not know personally, but have some expertise or who have published in the field. Occasionally, I will take the author's suggestions, but I actually, uh, I, I'm wary of doing that. These are often you know, friends, uh, uh, colleagues of the authors who are gonna be predisposed to writing a positive review. The literature actually has documented that suggested reviewers are more likely to recommend publication than than other reviewers. And occasionally I've been sent a paper that the uh, editor-in-chief thought was worth reviewing, and I just didn't think it was, it was going to be worth burdening reviewers with something that was likely to be rejected. So I'll consult back with the editor-in-chief in those cases.
1: It seems a good deal of thought goes into deciding on these specific reviewers, and that's something that I think is both useful and interesting for those who submit manuscripts to hear they haven't previously been involved or aware of the process. Now, At the end, you mentioned occasionally that a manuscript may be rejected without prior review. Could you provide some additional insights on why a manuscript might be rejected without review?
0: One of the main reasons is it doesn't really match um, the readership of the journal. So when I try to submit some of my medical education research and think about the appropriate medical education journal, some of them are more targeted to undergraduate medical education or graduate medical education or continuing medical education. Um, so really thinking about the appropriate target. So um, sometimes reviewers just might think, or, sorry, sometimes editors just might think, you know, this isn't of interest to our general readership. And I find that that's one of the main reasons um, that, that a rejection happens right away. And I know that Hank has more insight into this too from his work as an editor
2: well the editors have to be somewhat selective particularly the high impact journals you know they are absolutely flooded with submissions you know maybe 5% of the submitted papers end up being accepted so they they have to filter out this tsunami of submissions and the wrong audience is is one, uh, is one way to do that if the methods are clearly fairly obviously defective if the, the findings seem to be of low importance, you know, just incremental findings that may duplicate other studies, then I think that those are likely to be rejected without, without review. You know, without doing this, the overwhelming of the editors would simply translate into overwhelming the reviewers and their time is, is limited and all voluntary. So I think it's in many cases, an act of mercy to, uh, to quickly reject the paper without review.
1: Of course, I think this serves as a reminder of some of the challenges that can come with academia and scientific research, but it's also an opportunity for continued growth and learning, whether a submission is accepted or otherwise. You know, building on this last question, looking at what's perhaps the middle ground then when a submission is between acceptance and rejection, how do editors typically deal with divergent opinions from reviewers?
2: It is sometimes the case that you know one reviewer will recommend acceptance with minor revision, another reviewer will adamantly insist that a paper should be rejected. This is one of the reasons that I like to ask an odd number of reviewers, usually three. So you know, if one of them declines the review, at least I have two opinions. but hopefully if they all accept, then there's going to be some consensus among at least two of the three. But when there is disagreement, that's a time where I have to reread the manuscript more closely than I may have the first time around, and essentially be a reviewer myself. You know, I won't write up a review, but I have to formulate an independent opinion about whether or not this was worth uh, is worth continuing in the publication process, or uh, you know, which of the reviewers uh, I agree with more, unless I'm going to reject it completely. Um, I, I try to sort of split the difference between the two reviewers and point out the, the main points that are going to lead to this paper, the main revisions that will be necessary for this paper to go on and, and be published. But often then, if I, if I appear to be, you know, overruling or ignoring the, the strong opinions of one of the reviewers, I, I'll offline, I'll just send them a separate email explaining why, uh, why I made the decision I made, that I, I haven't ignored them, but I've had to weigh their opinion in light of my own opinion and the other reviewers' opinions.
1: It certainly sounds an unenviable and undoubtedly challenging situation that I'm sure editors, such yourself, don't take lightly. As we start to wrap up today's discussion, I want to begin again by thanking Dr. Hayes and Dr. Fessler for their time and sharing their expertise with us today. And we've had an excellent discussion on becoming a reviewer, the review process, and how to process the results of a review. Dr. Hayes and Dr. Fessler, do either of you have any closing thoughts on anything we've spoken about here today that you'd like to impart to or leave with our listeners?
0: I'll just say uh, two things as my closing thoughts. One, we touched on it a little bit, but I don't think we can emphasize it enough, is really thinking about the time that it takes to do a good review. And for me, again, with that Catholic guilt, I had had to learn the hard way that it's better to say no if I do have two weeks of service time or am busy than to be really, really delayed in a review. It's not fair to the editors and it's not fair to the authors. So think about that. Are you sure that you have enough time before you say yes? And then my other thought is when you do have the time, say yes. Uh, you should just kind of jump in. Don't don't feel like you don't have enough skills to do this. Don't let the imposter syndrome get the best of you. Just really dive in and do this. Once you do your first one, it'll become easier and easier. So just jump in and say yes when you have the time to do it.
2: Yeah, I also want to encourage all of the listeners to get involved in doing this. As I hope we've described, it really is a learning experience. Uh, It has uh, career benefits. And it's also a very, very important piece of the uh, the scientific literature. You know, you you are improving the quality of scientific communication, improving the quality of science. And uh, even though you may feel somewhat invisible while you're doing it, you're making a real contribution to science by uh, by being a journal reviewer.
1: Thank you again to Dr. Hayes and Dr. Fessler, as well as to our listeners. And we'll link to Dr. Hayes and Dr. Fessler's informative publication in today's show notes. And If any questions or comments on today's podcast, please reach out to us in the time group at contactatstime at gmail.com. And thank you again for listening.